Building and nurturing a developer community is hard work, but it is vital for the growth of a country's technology ecosystem. When communities coalesce around programming languages, tools, or programming methods, what follows is a network of conferences, meetups, and other similar events. Juan Pablo Baritica, VP of Engineering at Splice, has spent the last decade building developer communities in his home country of Colombia and across Latin America, as well as running distributed engineering teams. He has helped to launch a number of conferences, meetups, and more recently, an online meetup providing advanced technical information for native Spanish speakers. In today's episode, Juan returns to Software Engineering Daily to speak with Carl Mungazi about the benefits of having a distributed engineering team and hiring developers from developing nations. He discusses how Colombia came to have the largest Spanish-speaking JavaScript community in the world and the importance of good communication when building software with a team of developers based around the world. So Juan, um, thank you so much for joining me today on Software Engineering Daily. We've been here before. Just before we begin, would you mind just giving me a brief background as to what you're doing now from the last time you were on the show? Sure. I just joined, well, not just, but recently, about six months ago, I joined a company called Splice to lead their engineering team. Last time I was here, we were uh, I was I was working at Ride, which was a carpooling startup. Its parents' company got acquired, and the, the sort of innovation lab was shut down. But I was able to to move forward pretty quickly with with Splice, which is a music software production company. We built it's it's similar to a we could say it's a, similar to a GitHub for musicians, and, and, okay. and we could go in depth if you wanted to. Yeah. But that's okay. that's what it, yeah. Okay. And uh, yeah, that's something I definitely want to talk to you about later. But before we get to that, your biography and medium states that you build effective distributed engineering teams and Latin American communities. What does that process look like? So it's very different for both endeavors, but one one basically is my hobby in building communities in Latin America. And the other one just happens to be what I've specialized my work at, right? I, I, I became a software engineer by kind of accident and then I ended up being finding myself in, in sort of leadership positions or tech lead positions or management positions and then I eventually embraced it but the process I assume that you want to know is it about the Latin American communities or is it or is it both or which um, one I think we can start with the Latin American communities and how you've gone about doing that I mean I guess my well, first question would be from your work that you've done, um, what would you say are the key ingredients to building and nurturing a successful community of developers? So the most successful sort of process or work that I've, I've done is is just leverage local communities and set sort of set role models in places where they can share their knowledge. So I've been doing this for about seven years and I've done it in different capacities. I've started with software conferences. I've organized now eight events or nine events in all in all in Colombia except for one in New York where I where I participated once co organized. But I hosted the first open source technology conference ever in Colombia. That was in twenty eleven. And since then I started doing a lot of the local work it ended up leading to starting several meetups from here from New York mostly specific focus on JavaScript but that has triggered a lot of other technologies uh, being interested in sort of like replicating a lot of the work 
mean, it's also happened in other countries in Latin America, uh, in the Caribbean, in Venezuela, in the south southern cone, or like what we call Argentina, uh, Chile. So it's been it's been pretty successful in general. But there's 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 just been a combination of things we've done, mostly from the states downwards and also locally. So in that process, as you're working and building your communities, how do you measure the health? Of a of of a group of developers who are growing and becoming a wider community, what things are you looking out for? The things I'm constantly looking out for are first, well, the the most telling sign is the, the the attendance to the um, to the events. I think how fast JSConf Colombia sells out is now my metric. Mm. Right now, the, this year for our event, we've published our ticket batches and they've sold out within the next 10 to 15 minutes and we've we've sold 180 tickets in that manner so that tells me that there's a lot of desire to belong and to attend it's also like a it is an affordable conference but it's it is still expensive for the region so it, it, it is a sign that there's that it is a very healthy local community and and in doing so what would you say are the challenges of building a community from scratch when you have no kind of place to start in terms of conferences in terms of meetups in terms of just a general culture of having that community of developers so there's three main challenges but being in a different language adds an additional one so the first one is you need to build an, an ecosystem and that you're you're actually literally need to build the community so the initial event is usually means breaking a lot of ground finding a venue finding content doing a lot of local marketing and then being consistent, I, I remember that the first the first Bogota JS meetup had like five or six attendees. We we still made it every month on the same on a similar date, and we kept it being consistent until more people found out about it. And then it became something constant, and now it's been going for six years. So the first one is is that establishing some regularity in, in access to content. The, the the second one, which is very much tied into it is finding content that people are interested in specifically in in latin america and i don't know if this relates to other developing nations but finding people who have interesting experiences from software perspective who are also interested in sharing who are also in a position that their work allows them to talk about what they're doing is extremely hard so unless you have high density of software companies or software experience in, in 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 your locality you're probably going to have to give a lot of those talks yourself. It's one of the things that we that we did, right? We a lot of our uh, the organizers did wrote a lot of content and then gave talks and talks until we motivated a lot more people to join. That's the second challenge. The third challenge is finding a team, a team of volunteers or co-organizers who are willing to do basically f- free work for the love of the art. It's also like leading teams of volunteers is a little challenging because there's no compensation. Like when you have employees, you tell them, well, I pay you to do this. But in, in open source communities, there's there's no pay. So it's it's sometimes harder to find people who are really experienced. So you have to you have to sort of like deal with, with whatever, with whoever is, is very interested and very motivated. Lastly, the majority of content in for software engineering is in English. The majority of groundbreaking or very modern content is written in English. So the blog posts, the talks, everything is is in English, even documentation. That that makes it hard 
harder. So it adds like an extreme difficulty level to any communities that are in, in, in nations that don't have a high population of English speakers. So this is something you've done for the past seven years. And in that time, which languages, in terms of programming languages, have grown to have more active members across uh, Latin America? For example, I know that Colombia has the largest Spanish-speaking jazz community in the world. Are there any other languages also with a quite active membership? Yeah, so JavaScript is definitely leading. We've invested a lot of effort in JavaScript. It's also very common desired skill. So definitely, I'd say that JavaScript, other than Java and C Sharp, which are usually very enterprise enterprise desired languages in, in, in something that's very strong in Latin America, mostly from an industry desirability, JavaScript is, is top. I think in there, there was a... Brazil has a very big Ruby community. Argentina has a very still healthy Ruby community. I think Chile, Uruguay, it is evolving like it is happening in, in across the the globe where where, where Ruby is they're either moving towards Go or moving towards Rust or Elixir. There is still a lot of Ruby in, 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 in shops and in, in development in in the region, but I think the communities are becoming a little bit more diverse in the languages that they that they that they understand. I think Python is growing. And then I think ultimately we're specializing, right? There's I think Argentina there's a couple of mobile only conferences and meetups. Elixir I have seen a couple of things. There's there's a lot of interest in functional programming. Overall it's it's very broad the interests. We we we, we still haven't gone to specialize. Specialization has probably happened around JavaScript frameworks because there are a lot of a, a lot of different individual meetups for Ember or, or React or Angular or Meteor or Node. So that, that I think to me the to me the sign of a mature community, which which I relate to in, in New York, is that when you have more than one meetup of the same language, but that specializes in a specific either tool or cross section of it, it's a sign that that there's enough density for enough interest for this specific technology and, and that there's that it's maturing like you can you can I think New York has probably like over at least over 15 JavaScript meetups if, if not more so I'm sure San Francisco and, and Boston have at least more than two so so it's just I, I try to see that in, in, in Latin America and, and what I see growing, definitely JavaScript is very healthy. I think right now we have 12 meetups in Colombia. I think we have over 4,000 or 5,000 members. No, actually, no. Bogotá.js, I think, is around 2,800 members, and Medellín.js is around the same or probably a little bit more. So just in the two main meetups, we have around 6,000 members that rotated attendance. So that's sort of where we stand. Yeah. So... As I was doing my research on kind of the work you've done before, I came across a blog post you wrote in 2015. And in it, you made the argument that Colombia did not have a lack of engineers, but rather a lack of companies with attractive engineering cultures. Why is having a good engineering culture important? What I've found in my empirical experience is that Engineers, more than anything, are interested in in learning, or we're driven by learning. 
we're we're of course in a, in a in a segment of an industry that is having sort of a bonanza so we can get to pick and, we can get to be very picky on where we work at because there's enough of work there's enough money going around that we can afford to choose when you look at the region of Latin America the majority of industry jobs that are available are two kind first one enterprise level software banks insurance companies very very enterprisey level and software development and the second one is it's consulting or software software factories what we call them there <laughs> there's a lot of outsourcing and 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 nearshoring where we're you can see it in the states we were marketed in the states as a better offshoring and that's why it's called nearshoring right oh we're in the same time zone we're culturally similar we also speak english and we're also cheap and and that's what we that we're selling outside of our region that that just means that those that's the two options that you have there are companies of course and, and now like lately more and more startups that are either technical in nature or or service oriented that have interesting positions but then we haven't really copied the culture or like healthy cultures of software so we don't develop a lot of communities we don't i, I know of course there are exceptions there are, i know of companies there's few companies who i respect on an engineering culture level locally but it is not the the norm where there's a lot of respect for the craft or a lot of respect for the contribution or a lot of respect for the process of building software um and i think when you're competing right if given an option and you have two identical companies and one respects the craft of software it is in my experience and, I, and that's all i have to go for it, it is more likely that people will choose the one that respects the craft than the one that respects or that offers either a higher salary or different things we, we're interested in solving problems at a software level and that is also something that comes across with cultures that are very engineering driven because we're probably going to automate a lot of the processes we're going to write many things internally and, and, and invest in uh, in optimizing many workflows rather than just ship a product like build a product for someone else and then ship it and not see it grow or scale so that's that's a very short summary of that very long article so should we then say that when companies sometimes complain about having a lack of good engineers, should they first look at fixing their cultures before saying that there, there are no good engineers because maybe they are not coming to them because they don't think they respect the craft as you have explained? Absolutely. I think some of what the Silicon Valley culture has spread out around the world is that is this entitlement towards engineering talent is the fact that people believe that they deserve great engineers and that they and just show me your github but our company doesn't contribute back or we have no open source projects or we've never even sponsored 50 dollars for a meetup the attitude is very entitled it's like hey it's also very short-sighted it's saying that saying that there's no engineers because no one wants to work with you is a big problem and if you can't be self-aware of the of the fact that people don't want to work for your company and it's not that you can't find them or you can't attract them or there's nothing really compelling of what you're offering is the first step recognizing that is the first step towards actually fixing your culture 
asking for a GitHub profile has become almost the fault. But then if you're a candidate and you ask for for the GitHub profile of a of a company and you look that they have zero open source projects and there's been zero contributions and people are not allowed to do contributions to open source on the dime and they even they've like they've never they're sort of like software open source leeches they use all of the technology available but they haven't even invested in their own neighborhood to give back or pay it forward so i i I, to, to answer your question i think the first step for people to actually find great talent and be able to nurture and and sort of recruit is recognize that they are not entitled to great engineering if they are not well period but in order to to attract great engineers they need to to be attractive so with the experience that you have of creating um, communities of developers have you come to have a framework if you like which other engineers elsewhere can use as a template for also having their own communities kickstarted as well because last month or two months ago i was speaking to a, a, a someone from zambia in africa and he is a co-founder of, of a tech hub and he's trying to develop the zambian communities of, of developers and um, he was telling me that the things he was finding hard to do like the challenges he had so from what you've done do you have a framework that they can maybe use to help them in their situation to grow their community much faster I do have a recipe. I've also been meaning to write this down somewhere, and, and I, I'm going to have to do it over the next few weeks, but especially seeing that we're talking about this, and it'll probably become a little popular. <laughs> but the, my, my recipe is, is the following. I have something that I personally call my empanada fund, and it's I motivate local people in Latin America to start a meetup, and I tell them that I will fund the empanadas and the beverages for their first event. In addition to that, I will give them the following advice. First, you find a venue that will let you have 10 to 20 people together in an afternoon that is easily accessible to people in, 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 in the, either in the industry or after they're going to work. It's very important to have a venue. Then find a place that you want me to buy this food from and help me make it happen. Second, find one or two speakers locally in your community or even reach out to people overseas who may be willing to give remote like Skype talks or hangout talks because that may also be very very attractive to bring some people interested in your event meetup.com is very easy to set up sometimes especially outside of the United States it has a cost and it's sometimes easier to just have a little simple Eventbrite or other kind of event management systems to set it up for the first time to make sure that that you're not committing to something that maybe doesn't develop. But finding a place where people can sign up, you can keep their their email addresses so you can build a newsletter eventually is important. And then that's it. That's basically all you really need to make sure that your first event happens, right? Two speakers are enough. Make sure that there's content that's relevant, that you can try to have a theme then make it happen. Go set it at least 30 days in the future. Open a Twitter account, open a Facebook account, and just start telling people as much as you can about this. Uh, there, there's mark, like social media marketing strategies, like follow a lot of local people who are in the industry, tell your friends, tell them to share. If you get five people, that's a great start. 
because what you'll have developing is a small study group of people who are interested in the same things and who are willing to, in their free personal time, attend and collaborate. Then try to get one of those members who attended to help you, motivate them to give a talk about something that they're doing at work, something that they liked. I really, I've learned more about software by speaking about it. And it's very, if you can encourage other people to do the same, there's usually something that they've done in the past locally it will have an impact. And then the last part of the recipe is consistency. Make it happen every month, even if only three people show up. It will either, well, I think if you're in a small town, very, very small town, it may be very difficult. But if you're in a good enough density, there, there will be at least five people who are who will become regulars and you have a study group there and then you can probably start motivating oh let's let's experiment once a month or let's try something different and it, it it will build if it becomes dependable if it is the third wednesday of every month you know that this event will happen even if it rains if there's no power that people will meet and talk about software because they like i've seen it work more than 20 times with this in very remote places in Latin America. So I don't see why it can't work in, in, in many others. This is sort of the recipe that I that I found. Okay. And in doing so, should the person doing it be prepared as well for the financial cost? And I say this because in past interviews, I've heard you mention that it took a while for your, your conferences in, in Colombia to become profitable. So can you speak to the, the cost financially of doing such an endeavor? So meetups are much more affordable than large-scale events. It took a while for Bogotá JS to get some regular income, mostly because local companies just don't understand the the benefit of community, and they 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 assume that what they're if they're sponsoring a meetup, they're immediately going to hire a lot of people, and they don't, and they just get disappointed, and they don't really have a vision. I try. Like if you can't afford it and you're really uh, as invested and you're like in a privileged position like I am where I could donate a lot of my time and some of my money towards the cost, then do so. But it, there's there's a risk, right? The reason why I like small meetups is because they're manageable and you can sort of do it in a very DIY fashion. If you can convince a company that has a conference room to loan it to you, try to convince your boss like, hey, I want to meet this I, I want to meet here once a month talk to a local bar talk to a local community center that will maybe university try to keep it at zero food that's why i sponsored the first the first meetup ever it's because people people will go and, and and enjoy some food together if you can get your community to chip in that's also useful sometimes i know that in developing nations we don't necessarily either have access to credit to like digital payment methods that's a big problem in Colombia, right? That, like, for example, we can't charge $2 to attendees because not everyone, like, I think the credit card or debit card penetration is like 30% in the entire country. So it's just, we're just leaving a lot of people out. But charge at the door, say, like, hey, there's, we're, it's going to be a dollar to come in and we're going to give you soda or water or something. Try to keep costs at a minimum. If, if, if you really want to invest in it, then try to, try to keep it manageable. I don't like using the example of my conferences because I definitely lost a lot of money or not lost, invested 
a lot of money that I never got back. <laughs> <laughs> but but it took it took five years. It was my fifth conference was the first one that was that made that made money. I don't call it profitable because it were non profit, but but it was very different in New York. When I co organized in New York uh Empire Jazz, it was I think well Charlie Robbins is great at fundraising, but it, it was a very different like it was very straightforward to to sell uh, sponsorships. People really understand the value of it other than just recruiting. In Colombia, on, only until now, uh, Bogotá Jazz uh, found a, a permanent sort of sponsor for a venue, which was super challenging. And if you imagine in a, in a city of 12 million people mm-hmm. with a lot of industry, you would expect it to happen faster. So I don't want to destroy hopes, but I do want to set up the fact that it's difficult and it requires perseverance. It's it's entrepreneurship, but it's also entrepreneurship, which in the end you you do all the work, and you're you're just left with the satisfaction that you motivated and you you open spaces for other people. Like I'm very very proud of what we've done, and I haven't done this by myself. There's a, an incredible team of people behind everything, but it's yeah, it's there's no glamour behind community building. No, a byproduct of your work building communities is that you gained access to a network of developers across the region and a few years ago you gave a talk at autoconf about your time at ride building a team that was distributed and you said doing so or gave your company an advantage why was that yes you did some pretty good research <laughs> that's so far one of my favorite talks so we're at a, at a stage in in the software industry where there's this drive for diversity and this drive for opening and hiring talent and there's all these interests but ultimately building software teams is really really hard and the majority of the networks are very very topped right there's very popular companies that attract a ton of talent and everyone wants to work for and then the rest of probably either less experienced engineers, junior engineer, well, junior engineers and less experienced is similar thing. Or people who are probably not necessarily interested in, in, in your industry. Like if you're build if you're building an insurance startup, you need software engineers, but not everyone is excited about insurance. So you're gonna have to sometimes compromise on, on different things. And one of the advantages that I or side effects that I really wasn't planning for because I wasn't, I wasn't planning to become a, a manager or, or an engineer leader. From my communities was access to a lot, a lot of talent of people who are passionate about software have probably not have access to great opportunities locally. So they, they are not extremely experienced, but very, very good. So I, I've been able to hire much faster than I would have normally compete in a different level and also diversify the backgrounds of my of my teams because yes they've generally been very latin american heavy but culturally i've had people from very diverse socioeconomic backgrounds from very different racial makeup gender makeup it's ultimately yes they're heavy like for example right now i think five minute for five or six of my engineers at spice are Colombian, but they all have some, they all come from so many different backgrounds that they add a lot of very interesting experiences to our team. And we have a 
like our CTO is French and like we're, we're it's super spread out as far as where we come from. It's also uh, given me access to people who are not on the radar of uh, large companies where I can help them grow and in the same manner that they grow, get some really great people to work with me. Like for example, right now I have a, there's a Slack of Colombian developers that we started with our community, which is like only invite, like invite only, you have to like, your friend invites you into it. And there's a thousand engineers there. There's a thousand Colombian. They're all Colombian. Wow. Yeah. We're constantly just talking about different software problems or like there, it's like a mini stack overflow. We reached the, we're about to reach the Slack limit for, <laughs> for free community, but, but it's, yeah, it's pretty cool. And we've been able to maintain the code of conduct because that's why, that's why we made it like semi-exclusive. I would have wanted to open, to open it up, but we, there's a lot of cultural development that we have to do. But in general, you wouldn't even imagine like th- these people who, who argue that there's a cult, like a, an engineering deficit in, in the country which specifically even come from the industry or the government, they would never believe that there's a thousand people who are interested or, or professionals in softwares in the same space. And it's right there. Mm-hmm. So at Splice, how does the makeup of your team being distributed, how does this affect how you actually engineer and actually do the work that you do every day? So the only thing that, that it affects is Communication, it makes communication a little a little more explicit. Yes, we need to over-communicate, and yes, there, like, there's, we need to use the, the right channels, but I do have one constraint. The only constraint I have in my team is time zone, so we work on the Americas time zone, Pacific to, to Eastern. Sometimes there's the language barrier, and I think in this case at Splice, we are an American company. I do want to build an American team as much as, yes, I am Latin American, and I have a bias for the region. I... I still think that I, well, not think I, like I, I owe a lot to this country and I want to, I want to figure out how to replicate some of the community or recruiting stuff that I've done in developing nations and how it maps to underdeveloped regions within the United States. So that's something that probably in the long term I would like to, to try to see how, how I can do. But ultimately, as long as we communicate really really well and we use the proper channels to communicate like we don't broadcast a lot of information on slack because we have a saying that slack is for gifts and like only casual conversation happens in slack and if you need to to say something important send it by email or have a call if you need if you think that the tone is not coming across properly because you may be right in a in a passive aggressive manner those things are, are the only really not difficulty but challenge you have to be very conscious of how you're communicating or what you're communicating and where information lives because co-located teams just get that for free just by being in the same location so you don't have to focus on on, on, sh- on how you share information and that's why when companies who are co-located grow after a certain size they have a huge communication breakdown because once you have 40 people in the same place you can't keep everyone in sync and your entire communication strategy breaks down. If you're always conscious of the fact that there's a physical limitation and that you have to commit information to writing and you have to broadcast it and share it, it actually makes it easier for you to grow. So I think it's an advantage in the majority of cases. I miss it. I like having people next to me, right? I really love the people who I work with and I wish I could have everyone 
close to me all the time. But I think I think it's a it's a trade that I'm willing to live with. So over there at Splice, um, what is your tech stack, and uh, what kind of challenges are you currently tackling at the moment in terms of engineering challenges? Well, our our tech stack is very vanilla in the in the in the way that we try to keep it as standard as we can because we are more interested in solving industry challenges than just playing with a a lot of interesting technologies. Our backend is all Go. We've been so Matt, our CTO, has committed to Go for a very long time. I think we've been using Go in production for, for a very long time. He comes from a Ruby background. He's written a lot of different languages, but he he was a, a big Rubyist and he committed to Go. So our API and our backend service our backend services are all Go. We use Elasticsearch for some stuff. We have a MySQL database that we rely on heavily. Everything is hosted on AWS. We have a native app that we actually just rewrote. It was a native Objective-C and a native C-sharp app, but we just launched. We're about to replace the production installments for an app that's Electron. So it uses Electron, the, the interfaces, HTML, and CSS, and, and Angular JS. There's a Go bridge that communicates via RPC to a lot of the, sorry, gRPC to a lot of the low-level processes. And then there's the old Objective-C and C-sharp code that we're slowly going to replace with Go as much as we can. And then our web stack is a mix of Angular 1, Angular 2 RC5, and then Angular 2 and Angular 4. <laughs> I think there's <laughs> just very different flavors of, depending on what we could do at the time, we would use one or or the other. But I'm very happy to say that like over the six months, we've the last six months, we've been investing a lot in, in our web stack. We've reduced the load time from about six seconds to under one and a half in the majority of our web. Splice.com doesn't load that fast yet, but within the next three weeks, I'm pretty sure it will. But that's it. We're betting on Angular mostly because we believe in a lot of the things that, that it was set to like early on, and, and now it's it's pretty ingrained in our, in our software, so we're going to invest in it as much as we can. We believe that we, we can give back to the community as well. Okay. And then and go. So let's say I happen to get a job at Splice and I'm based in the UK. What would the onboarding process be like for me and how long would it take in that system that you have set up at the moment? So the system that I have set up at the moment is very drafted, right? I, I think one of the things I haven't been able to invest in a lot yet is more of these onboarding and scaling processes, which is one of the reasons why um, hiring management, right? But the the way it would look like, and it would actually look for Angie, where she starts. She starts in a couple of weeks. So I am right now planning a thirty and a sixty and a ninety day plan for her. So she has her objectives of what she needs to learn about our stack or our product or our company at different milestones. So you basically you're basically given a plan of at least the things that I would like you to know by a certain amount of time. You'll be given homework on some of the onboarding things that you, that we'd like you to research because us being a startup that has moved very fast, it also means that a lot of people who wrote many other things are not here anymore and we have to do some archaeology. <laughs> so I, I take the, I take the advantage of, of having, of, of treating new onboardees as archaeologists and his 
historians, software historians. So I'll probably write things that are not clear, the questions that are not clear. The things that are not clear, you should probably write your, your task with writing those as a question so we can answer them for future employees. And it's also as much as you can, you can help us answer those. And then there's other rotation into our support, into our engineering support team, which is this, I, this comes from my kitchen background, which is basically you, you, I like doing a rotation around different disciplines, similar to like how some kitchens rotate people through stations and support is how we support the entire company. Basically, it's not only customer support, but it's also if marketing needs data or they need to send a new campaign or they, they need a new HTML template or we need to look at some mixed panel event that wasn't firing properly. Like there, there's there's a, a dose of very interesting tasks that are very technical that no one side of engineering team can, can solve. And it gives you a great overview of where everything stands. You're, of course, not by yourself. You're, you go on duty with with one of our engineers who is experienced, who, who knows where everything is, and you have the support of everyone in the engineering team. But you will probably spend there a couple of weeks until we can decide what product team or product, yeah, yeah what product you, you, you'll be working on or what feature you'll be working on, and then you move slowly into that, attend a lot of those meetings and coordinate a lot of those things. In addition to that, you get to participate in all the technical discussions that we have, which are we do all our of our technical discussions over RFCs. So basically, every every time one of our team members needs to do an important engineering change or update or feature, they're asked to propose the the change to the team in a pull request of a of a technical document that doesn't really need to be very heavy in nature, but it needs to explain how certain thing is going to be implemented, why the approach is, is being taken in, and, and then open open the discussion for a couple of days for the rest of the team to give their opinion. Ultimately, they are responsible for implementing and unless our CTO or, or myself see either a high technical risk or a business risk, usually people are very independent in, in, in moving forward with that. So you, you get to participate in very deep technical discussions early on and also see the past decisions we've made and this is something we invest like it becomes a lot more valuable as time goes on we don't have a, like, I think we have like 15 or 20 RFCs and some that are still open some that we haven't really paid a lot of attention on but there, it's an interesting insight into how we how we work so you get to you get to see that from day one okay as a follow on to that question as well when would you say is the best time in a developer's career to join a remote engineering team so, for example, in my case, I've only been a, a, a coder for like uh, the last year. So, would you say that after a year is, is a good time or maybe I should wait a bit longer or is there no time to join a team remotely, in your opinion? It depends on the supporting structures that your, that your company has. I prefer not to bring... So, in, in, at Ride, my, my, the couple of junior engineers who I hired, they had people locally um, to support them who could they could co-work at least three times a week or two times a week and they could have guidance and not feel lonely so it really depends on on that i am not a fan of bringing inexperienced engineers into very heavy remote cultures because those are very they expect a lot of self-management and self-discipline and ability to sort of communicate really really well and sometimes you're just not 
either used to or don't have the expectations set on how those things work. And it may be, may be a disservice to your... Yeah, I think it's just unfair to expect to put so so many high expectations on that. I'd say someone... I'd wait a couple of years until I've worked worked with the team and really gotten a sense of myself on how I work. Probably start trying to get a, like a hybrid role where I can work from home at least once or twice a week before I really I really move to a to a remote or a fully remote position. There are so many unwritten rules about companies, especially companies that are moving super fast that participating and being completely immersed in all these things and product discussions and just random office life. I think it's very, very important. And then making the choice, yeah, like uh, I'm fine with not with not being exposed to all those things is, is useful. But if not, and, and you make the, and you have the misfortune of joining a company that may not be 100% uh, remote or very remote friendly, you may just feel either isolated or be excluded from important information and that's just frustrating. And and on that point, actually, what then is the process by which at Splice you come to decisions in which all your engineers, remote and not remote, feel included and that they actually they actually are being thought about as you and Matt and any other leaders are making choices about um, engineering matters? Okay, so people who feel included in decisions, is this generally specifically about hiring or about how we work or make technical decisions I'll probably just, I'll probably just, just, just um, how you work in general as to how you actually go about your daily duties and weekly and monthly kind of sprints I guess as well okay so we we open spaces so th- there's there's two kinds of, of communication there's the push communication and the pull communication right just like in systems I expect from more of the senior or more experienced engineers to be able to bubble up information so that I don't have to go query it and that's part of so that that is not a part of them feeling included I, I expect that the entire team is bringing up information as as it goes uh, I of course have spaces for them like my regular one-on-ones where I find I, I sort of do my check-ins and make sure that everything is, is is working well with everyone but everyone is expected to keep their peers and the engineering team up to date with things that are going. We try to, so for that we try to do, if it's technical decisions, that's how we use the RFCs. If it's project updates, we have sometimes standups, depending on the size of the team or who's running the team, standups or emails or just different mechanisms to make sure that everyone knows what it is. In regards to me keeping everyone included, every four to six weeks I have an engineering staff meeting where I sort of share a lot of the information about where the company is at, where the company is going, where our team is at, where our team is going, and open the, the questions for, open, yeah, open the floor for questions of, of the team. In addition to that, we have a bi-weekly or weekly town hall for the entire company. So that's where the entire team gets to see where we're at as a, as a company, how we're progressing, who is hired, who is coming on board, just have regular updates of what's going on. We have engineering update, product update, a business update, marketing update. And then we just end the call with every, every office letting one of our team members update. So New York says something and then everyone who's remote says something about their day or what they're doing on the weekend, that sort of stuff. And finally, we organize our, our 
our technical teams in what we call our working groups. And these are more disciplinary. So we have the front-end working group and the back-end working group and the QA working group. And these these have regular either weekly or bi-weekly meetings that are more around specific problems to, to that team. So in the back-end team, we talk about specific either API challenges or database disks are growing or Elasticsearch is being difficult. Front-end, we can be talking about performance or updates or modifications or, or, or that sort of stuff, like very sort of maintenance related. And same for QA. And then we have, we open those spaces for people to give their opinions about our existing strategy, their concerns, things that we should really solve it at an engineering level. And then Matt and I are involved in all those different layers. I think Matt covers a lot more of the specific technical needs and he guides the team with updates and technical improvements and technical modifications. And I'm more on the people end but that's that's how we ensure that we have those spaces. And I think as we grow, we're we're not that many right now. But as we grow, a lot of these things are going to have to be committed more into written medium and become a little bit more asynchronous. We ha- we haven't had a, that big of a challenge with yeah. Okay. So um, moving on now back to Latin America. Um, what would you say is the current state of the Latin American tech ecosystem? I would say it's rough. I think it's nascent, but it's rough. And I also, I think it's very difficult to group the entire region as a whole because the local dynamics have a huge impact on on the maturity of each ecosystem. I think Argentina is particularly, Argentina and Chile are particularly very advanced culturally and technologically. I think Argentina in general has always had a very different. Argentina and Uruguay have very had have always had a very different cultural sort of sense of self than the rest of Latin America. You can see that in a lot of very creative approaches to to technology or to art or design or music. I think Mercado Libre, which is the Latin American eBay has huge offices there and it, it, it has had a huge impact in the region they they survived the dot-com boom and in a lot of the sort of the investment there is very visible chile had a had a great governmental program government program that's called startup chile yes where yeah. the the government just invests a bunch of money mm-hmm. in local startups and they're bringing not just local but um also international, and that's brought a lot of external expertise. It's changed the mentality of uh, Chileans is how they approach technology, and I think it's it's been really interesting. Brazil, Brazil is a continent on its own, pretty much. It's got a huge economy, a very large population, a very different language. So I consider Brazil even like a, its its own mini continent, and they're they're very far ahead. They have a lot of very, they're a very sort of developed developing nation they're one of the largest economies too in the world so i think colombia i know a lot about colombia is moving forward i'd i'd love for it if a lot of the programs that the government is trying to fund or finance were less entrepreneurship driven more infrastructural i think we lack a lot of infrastructure as far as like our mail system doesn't work so you really can't have successful sort of deliveries services and our payment systems and regulation is super challenging because we're not we have a very dark history of money laundering and 
money transactions that prevent that just requires us to have a lot of difficulties around moving money and that just makes local companies it has a lot of obstacles for local companies to transact online and in general there's too much focus on exporting labor right i think it's too convenient for companies to hire sort of do this nearshoring and because it's more affordable and cheaper and it makes so much sense and but we're just on the wrong end of that i think it may be a short-term bonanza for a lot of people who are, who, are, who own those companies we're not investing a lot in the deep technical knowledge and deep technical experience that will come handy down the line venezuela has a lot a lot of talent lost a lot of talent unfortunately i think i know a little bit less about peru ecuador and bolivia and, but, but I'm sure, like, I've, I've seen very similar patterns of nearshoring or offshoring in a lot of software factories and less creative products. An interesting pattern is, is there's a lot of social entrepreneurship, which is pretty cool. And I see a lot more interest in, in products that have a deeper impact, social impact, than what comes generally from the, from the valley. Mexico, the majority of its talent is leaves to the bay area but they also have a very very different culture approach toward technology and it's the, the great products come come from from mexico and in general central america is in a similar position to probably colombia or or, or Peru or Ecuador, where there was there's just lower density a lot of outsourcing i think one of the patterns that i would like to break away from is the what i call what is it we call the tropicalization of Silicon Valley, which is basically taking validate, validated models, business models, and then just rebuilding them locally. So there was a local Groupon, and there's a local Uber, there's a local Seamless, there's a local SoulCycle, there's a local ClassPass, there's a local everything. And it makes a lot of sense because someone else took the risk and built the technology and improved the path, but it leaves nothing to the talent and just a lot of money to those who copy. It's brilliant from a business perspective. It works, but it's just there's just something that I don't like about it. Actually, and on that point, I interviewed a guy called um, Christopher Schroeder, and he has a good, deep knowledge on the Middle East. And he said that sometimes it is good to have those copycats because once they grow and maybe have a big IPO, like in 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 the Middle East, there was a company called Suit.com, which was the Amazon of the Middle East, with with obviously some differences for the regional setting. But when Amazon bought the company this year, he said that that leaves more developers, entrepreneurs, who then leave that company and start up smaller companies, and as a result, that leads to more talent and more growth and more sharing of of schools and education. I mean, do you think maybe sometimes? copying is a good idea i think it's good to learn i don't completely hate it but i think it's the little companies that have had exits at least in colombia that i know of have not left any wealth okay other than the founders they really haven't so that they're the cultural since there's no competition and the local investors really don't know a lot of uh, about like better practices of like re reinvesting in wealth and oh you all your employees should be really well vested and they should like you want this to to move forward 
it really hasn't happened in Colombia specifically. I don't I don't want to talk about any other country because I don't know a lot more about it. But I haven't seen anything left behind because usually the, the, the founders here are not really technical. They're usually business people who saw the idea and they hired engineers locally oh, okay. and they just and they just pay them for it, have terrible business practices, terrible engineering cultures. They sell the company, they exit, but that's it. So there's there's no like, – like the difference in, 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 in healthy ecosystems is that founders and key employees are usually technical or they know a lot about like they, – they come from similar – sort of startup backgrounds where they've seen the the cycle move forward and they 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 become when they exit they become investors and they fund again and they do that i haven't seen that in colombia maybe maybe we haven't had enough cycles mm. but i've seen people who have exited and that's it i want to be proven wrong i want to believe that it's possible i just haven't seen it and maybe it's just going to take a lot longer okay. so last year you launched charla which is a monthly meetup for providing advanced technical knowledge in Spanish. What problem are you hoping to solve with your meetups online? So there's four specific problems I'm trying to solve. One is that there's no access to very recent or bleeding edge content about technical knowledge, whether it's software engineering, software design, software architecture, design in general, UI, UX, visual design and and in other disciplines there's not a lot of bleeding edge content in spanish accessible so i'm trying to bridge the gap a little bit there i i don't think that that it's a sustainable path forward but we're not in a great path to learn to speak english in the region everyone so at least i think if, if people become interested they probably can break those barriers easier if they if they if they see what's possible what's out there Second is the density problem. As much as we can have a healthy JavaScript meetup in Colombia, well, in Medellin or in Bogota, in the Amazons, there's probably one, like in Leticia, there's probably one or two people. I don't, I'm extrapolating, I also don't want to be insensitive, but, but there's probably less people who can have this experience who ha- are also at a place where they can share it. So by, by starting Charla, I think that we can increase accessibility to people who who don't have any local resources as far as this i think finally it's the access not not only to local experience but also the to to break down the the or to bridge the gap of experience there's not a lot of people who are encouraged to share their knowledge at work so we have great we have great companies probably banks that have super interesting challenges of how to solve specific problems but employees are not encouraged to share and there's not a culture of sharing experience even if it's not business critical or or, or very specific about like it's not intellectual property so hopefully we can we can expose a little bit more of that production level experience to other people and then i think finally setting role models we're used to seeing people from other cultures other cultures talk to us and teach us and it's 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 probably further to to see yourself if you see this Silicon Valley engineer who has a degree in computer science in Stanford and works for Google and has been super successful and relating to that experience is a lot 
is much further than seeing someone who looks like you, who speaks like you, who likes very similar things like you, and who is also has solved very difficult or has encountered very interesting experiences. And it, it, I think it's it's something that we're missing because even if you see like international events, uh, including I'm not gonna I'm gonna deny it, JSConf Colombia, include a big component of having people from developed countries come to talk to us, come to teach to us. And there's this colonial aspect that I feel very uncomfortable by, this may sound rough, but by bringing white people to teach us. I don't think it's sustainable. I, I, I think we have to we have to do this for ourselves a little bit more. And maybe at some point we're, we're leading industries, but right now those, those are the four the four challenges that that I would really like to at least not I don't think I can solve them but move them a little forward that that'd be that'd be cool okay and since you started the meetup what's been the response from the community and the developers who have signed up each month it's been slowly growing I of course wish it was much larger right like but 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 I think I don't remember but the the first Charla has over fifteen hundred views. Fifteen hundred views. That's that's much more impact that we could have on any local meetup. So that's it's very positive. We're, we're steady rolling. I think we've had five episodes so far. Uh, that's fifteen speakers. But now those videos are published. Now we're starting to publish individual videos of each talk. We've had some great talks. We've had some okay talks. But the cool thing is that all of them have been in Spanish of advanced technical knowledge. And I think it'll continue to grow in the same way that we've grown our local meetups. It'll take some time as people get to know us. And we're also moving away from the Colombian-specific region. This is aimed at towards anyone in, 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 uh, in Spanish-speaking countries. It is a different time zone than Spain. Probably the difficult, but we're still recording the content and it is available to everyone so hopefully it'll it'll pick up more okay well um thank you so much for that one and thank you again for coming on the show and we look forward to speaking to you again soon thank you so much for your time carl it's it's been fantastic you've had some great great questions and i really appreciate the the effort you invested in this okay thank you <laughs>